well. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, for coming in through those platforms that Anchor.fm pipes out to. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you see that big subscribe button. That's to remind you to subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already and click the bell for continued notifications. A couple URLs, victorybaptistkc.org, where you can find our sermon content, teaching series, thebaptistbroadcast.com. You can access this podcast through there, and you can also read articles. It's not the kind of episode that I look forward to doing. I would much rather um, focus on doctrine. Um, I would I would uh, much rather focus on, um, you know, confessional theology, and, and some of that will be the subject matter today, but within the context of dispute and within the context of controversy, which is never... Um, um, it, it, of course, can be used for a good purpose because God uses all things, uh, but it, it's 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 regrettable um, that you know always in the moment it's it's never a desirable or a or a comfortable thing. And here we are, um, you know, disagreeing with a brother um, who has made several accusations uh, against my person and has uh, brought in the name of my church as well. So. Um, I'm going to be responding to some things that Dr. James White said on the last Dividing Line. The Dividing Line recorded uh, April 21st, so last Thursday. Um, and this is really what I'm going to focus in on here. There, w- there would be some things that I would like to address in, his, in, in the portion where he exegetes Philippians 2, which I don't think the exegesis is disagreeable, um, but how he articulates some of his exegetical conclusions, I think... Um, uh, would be worth interacting with, but the purpose of this episode is going to be to interact with that last, really what amounts to about 15 minutes of that dividing line episode where I come up and where where some accusations are made that imply um, some kind of fault in my character, dishonesty, um, and so what I want to do is I want to I want to go through that. I'm going to have the video up and. Then I'm also going to have some some screenshots to produce uh, here in in this video, um, and we'll look at the confession and 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 I'll just be responding to the video as we go through it. It's it's 15 minute long, 16 minute long video, so you can count on on this video being double that length. So probably around 30, 35 minutes. It could be longer. Um, so we'll just we'll just take it as it comes, and um, hopefully God will be glorified in the way um, this plays out. Now, before I before I start here, and I've said this time and time again, um, so I'm not sure why it's being um, why that hasn't been recognized. But uh, when I'm interacting with Dr. James White, and as I've interacted with him in the past. I've interacted with him uh, as I would interact with a brother. All right. So I make the assumption that Dr. White is a brother. Um, nobody, as far as I can tell, unless maybe you have some some people on social media or something, has made an attempt to kick James out of the kingdom. And, um, and so that just hasn't happened here uh, on the on the Baptist broadcast, it's not happened on my social media accounts, and so um, in this video, as I interact with Dr. James White, I'm interacting with Dr. James White as a brother interacting with another brother, and so um, uh, I hope that that will be received well. 
and um, and I hope that my interaction will be uh, will be seasoned accordingly. Um, so this is someone I, I love and have benefited from in the past, um, but it's also someone with whom I, I have some serious disagreements and and for whom I have some concerns. All right, so I just want to make that very clear: the disagreement, concerns, error in doctrine, even if that doctrine be. Uh, heterodoxical or a departure from, uh, from, you know, confessional orthodoxy. Um, I think there's a difference to be made between, uh, ignorance, recalcitrance. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, when we wake up in the morning and think about God, we think about him oftentimes heretically, right. And praise God for his grace. The difference is between a Christian and someone who recalcitrantly sticks their feet in the mud of heresy and digs in, is that a Christian uh, uh, grows and learns and progresses and seeks the, the face of our Lord through the through the Lord Jesus Christ and and uh, and finds forgiveness and and maturity and so on and I think uh, out of the both of us James and I I think we're both of that mindset I I I'm still confident that there is a desire on both of our sides to continue in learning and part of the clarion call of of those who uh, who confess the second London and want to grow in our understanding of what we confess so that we can confess it more uh, conscientiously and uh, and and more articulately is the admission that that we are learning. Um, and, you know, James brings up all the time, you know, back in the 90s, this stuff wasn't being talked about. Well, no, it wasn't. Um, and I don't know who he's talking about in, in, in the dividing line earlier on in this episode. He talks about someone who is affirming what he affirms now six years ago. I don't know if that's me or someone else, but it's like, yeah, absolutely, probably, most likely, um, because we're all learning. And um, uh, one of the things we all have to, to, to try and do and to, uh, to try and do consistently is to humbly receive the fact that we are all learning, that we're all subject to error, and that there is a learning curve on all of our ends and and that we must you know press forward in humble submission to what the Lord has, has given us through his word and so with that said let's go on uh, and and look at this video we'll go to this screen different screen here so you see James on on the right side sorry it's kind of stopped in a weird place he's he's got his hand up um, but uh, um, we're, we're going to go through this and I'll just go ahead and start in the human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And they said, remember these, these are experiential Trinitarians. The, the disciples hear the father speaking from heaven, at the baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've walked with the son. They're now dwelt by the Holy spirit. They're experiential Trinitarians. And so they, confess that Jesus Christ is kurios to the glory of God the Father. There you have the exaltation. Because of his obedience, because of his humiliation, therefore God highly exalted him. God the Father highly exalted him. And you have the one who laid aside the exercise of divine privileges Okay, so this that language right there, laying aside the exercise of divine privileges. 
is one of the problems um, that I mentioned in a Facebook post that's about to come up. And, uh, and, and, and I'll put that Facebook, the screenshot of that Facebook post here in a moment. The idea that the divine son as God, right? The, the idea that God, the son, laid aside, laid aside God's privileges. So, so in other words, the person of the son, God, the son went from the exercise of divine privileges to not the exercise of divine privileges. That is a change implicated in the deity. And so we want to guard against implying any sort of mutability or change within the divine essence. And that kind of language here is what I'm concerned about. So, and, and this is what has been characterized as, as canonic theory as well. It's the idea that, that God has laid aside some aspect of his godness and has converted into man such that some, some things pertaining to his deity have ceased or have been laid aside or have been suspended in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so, uh, you know, we'll get into that more, but just, just saying at the outset here that this is the language that's at issue, just, just for clarity's sake. This is the language that's at issue, and it's going to come up here uh, again. He takes that perfect human nature, and he is exalted. Now, with that said, let me uh, mention something about the concept of the veiling of the glory of Christ. I mentioned uh, on the last program this reality and as we'll see here in a moment, I have been formally accused of heresy uh, by... Now, that's not true. I never formally accused James White of heresy. I've never accused James White uh, of being a heretic. I, uh, I have kept this conversation to the best of my ability centered around doctrine. And so I have made claims in the past that this doctrine is heretical or it's the beginning of a departure from orthodoxy. But there's a difference between saying, labeling a person a heretic, which implies, of course, that they are outside of the kingdom, and saying that this person has fallen into error by believing or by articulating, it's not even, maybe not even believing, but by articulating uh, a heresy uh, in their in their language. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a key difference to make, because if I go, I've preached heresy before. Um, I was talking to some gentlemen at our church the other day um, about how, you know, you know, uh, there was, there was something that I preached that I actually requested the, the, uh, our, our brothers who, who run the sermon audio side of things to strike it from the recording because I acknowledged that it was wrong. And then I made a, a correction to it later, um, from the pulpit. And, um, so there's, you know, that doesn't mean, did I preach heresy? Yes. Does that mean I'm a heretic? No. Okay. So, so we need, we need to make those kinds of careful distinctions. Arius, for example, was labeled a heretic 
because he had recalcitrantly dug himself into his heresy, into the heresy that he articulated and professed to believe, and was immovable, notwithstanding the counsel of his his of what had been his brethren, right? And so he essentially departed from the truth. And you know those who um, those who leave us, those who depart from us, show that they were never of us. To use the language of John. So we want to distinguish between that and what's going on now. I don't think Arius and the the characteristics of that situation are happening now. I think there has been some erroneous, some her, uh, some heterodox doctrine. But even even if we even if we go to the Facebook post that that he's about to bring up, you will see that the way in which I use the word heresy is to describe a particular doctrine called the canonic theory, and it's not being applied to a person. So. Let's uh, continue on here. Individuals um, who are pastors in similar churches to my own. I'm going to refute that charge and um, demonstrate that it is um, vacuous and very foolishly leveled. And hope and pray that those who would uh, engage such, such, such activities would find the wisdom to repent and to um, correct their ways. So, so just, okay, so just to be very clear here. I'm not, I do not think, I have not claimed that James White is a heretic, all right? Um, I don't believe that he is. When Jesus takes on human flesh, he does so for a purpose, become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So there has to be a, 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 a true incarnation for there to be a true atonement. The divine son of God, according to John chapter 17, and by the way, I did not see anyone even attempt, even try, uh, pretend to respond to the exegesis, John 17, 5. It was offered on the last program. Um, the divine son of God had to be a true man. And therefore, there are aspects of his divine being that are veiled. Okay, now, when, when he says veiled, uh, we're on board in terms of what's veiled to us. Obviously, you know, he's going to talk about, you know... <laughs> The son in the incarnate state, in, in his incarnation, didn't walk around glowing, you know, because some, you know, slices of deity were showing through his flesh or something like that, you know. Um, obviously, uh, part of the glory of the incarnation is that the incarnation, the assuming of a human nature, had to occur... If that is the way that God wanted to, to redeem humanity, it had to occur that way in light of who God is as immutable, self-existent, infinite, etc. There had to be a nature assumed that was not those things, right? So that God himself could stand in our place. So that's what James is getting at here. But we're going to see that, uh, you know, uh, there needs to be a, a more... Uh, articulate expression 
of the Incarnation such that we don't make the mistake of confusing what's proper to the human nature with what is proper of the divine nature, which is what I think goes on in this video. And I'll try to and I'll try to point out where that happens. We all know, of course, that uh, man cannot simply look upon God. God tells this to Moses. You cannot look upon me. I will put my hand over, over you. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will pass by and you will see my back. And we know he's a consuming fire. And that the full glory of the Son of God would, would consume anyone. Now, how could Jesus fulfill the prophecies of the meek and mild, uh, the one that does not, uh, you, you know, the, the one that is the suffering servant? If the Shekinah glory of Yahweh is displayed in him, as I've often said, if Jesus and the disciples could walk through the streets of Jerusalem at three o'clock in the morning, they don't need torches because Jesus is glowing so brightly. This would have fundamentally impacted his ministry. And so does the second person of the Trinity become less glorious in the incarnation, in the veiling? Well, it's not like glory disappears. It's not like it's extinguished or done away with. And, and the fact that it's still a reality of the second person's uh, existence is seen in the transfiguration. But even then, it's still not to the level of what we would see in Revelation, for example, or even really in Isaiah 6. Um, I think what Dr. White's doing here is he's confusing two species of glory. Um, the divine glory, the infinite divine glory properly applied to the divine essence is not what's experienced at the transfiguration. That is the person of the Son's glory according to his human nature that uh, he is uh, there to procure and to eventually consummate in the ascension, the resurrection and then the ascension. Um, and so when this, this, this glory that's shown through the incarnate Christ is not, the, it's, a, it's a revelatory glory, right? It's an incarnate glory. Uh, that anticipates the exaltation of the risen Lord. It's not the glory properly applied to the infinite divine essence that cannot be seen or experienced, perceived piecemeal by the creature who is finite. Okay, and so I think what's going on here is there, there is a fundamental confusion happening between the divine and human natures. Um, and there's not, the, the partitive language that needs to be present is not present. Um, so when Dr. White's talking about, uh, you know, he, he's, and I don't know where he, he, he has gotten uh, this from, but where he's, where he's criticizing the, the erroneous view 
that uh, something of the divine glory would be showing through the incarnate state of the Son as he walks around earth um, and fulfills his earthly ministry, um, I think the supposition behind that is uh, is that um, there has been some kind of a conversion that has taken place in the person of the Son, rather than an assumption of an additional, or the assumption of a human nature, there's been a conversion of some aspect of the Son into humanity, such that he is required to forfeit the exercise of some of his divine prerogatives, because some kind of a transformation from one state into another state has taken place. And that is not the doctrine of the Incarnation. Um, the doctrine of the Incarnation, I think, is, is very well articulated in chapter 8 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, where um, in Article 2, it reads, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, being very and eternal God, which is similar language to what's in Philippians 2. The brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, an assumption of man's nature, not at the expense of anything divine. All right, that's the thing we have to maintain. There's no expense uh, that terminates upon anything that's divine, right? Christ doesn't, the Son hasn't given away anything. No, no aspectival cessation of divine prerogatives, no forfeiture of deity in any way. But that divine person assumes to himself the man, the, the, a, a human nature, accepting only sin. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being, and notice the language, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, of the human nature, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, without composition, without confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. It's an incredibly powerful and precise statement, because what's being said here is that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures are joined together in the one person of Christ. If, if the divine nature in which the person of the Son subsists eternally remains whole and perfect, then it follows that we cannot say Jesus, you know, ceased in the exercise of some of those prerogatives, which is not language that I would personally use. I'm just using it for the sake of interacting with James White, because that's language he has used. It does not, we cannot say that he has ceased in the exercise of those prerogatives, because the, na the divine nature 
which the sun is cannot undergo any kind of change or diminution or cessation or mutation, anything like that. It remains a perfect nature, even in light of the fact that a human nature has been assumed and united to it in the one person of the sun. Okay, let's let's go on. Hopefully that was hopefully that was clear and, and precise. Because we know the one seen in Isaiah six is is the sun. If we can even distinguish between the father and the son anymore. But anyway. Um and so now that was he Dr. White has made accusation has what's he made accusation? Well, he has um he has brought into question the doctrine of divine simplicity as it's articulated in the confession um, without body parts or passions. He calls it the extended form of divine simplicity. And he has uh, questioned as to whether or not that doctrine of divine simplicity allows for a true doctrine of the Trinity. In light of divine simplicity, how do we distinguish between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And he has used the term modalism in reference to the questioning of that so-called extended doctrine of divine simplicity, implying that we are unable to make a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, when this distinction has been made time and time again in all of the literature, uh, the same God who works all things in Adonis Vidu. Um, we might, you know, bring up all that is in God. Uh, there's there's still a distinction maintained. Francis Turretin in the classical articulation, I mean, you can't, in, in my opinion, Francis Turretin is one of the best reformed scholastic sources in terms of an articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And he maintains the exact same doctrine of the confession and he's making sufficient distinction between the persons in the Trinity or the subsistences to use the language of the Second London Confession of Faith. So the charge that the confessional doctrine of simplicity necessitates modalism is a grievous charge. It's just, it, and it's not a, a fair one. Uh, there's plenty of there's plenty of source material to go to, historical source material, contemporary source material to go to if one wants to, to see that distinction of what kind of distinction is made between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, let's go. So, veiling, laying aside for the purpose of the incarnation and... Those are two different things. Veiling... That is veiling the deity to us, so it's a it's a relative veiling, right? It's not it's not veiled to the person of Christ, but in but it is veiled to us because we experience God through the incarnate Christ, right? We uh, and his you know Christ's disciples uh, talked to God and ate with God um, in relation to the Son according to His human nature. Right, so it's veiled to us, to the world. Um, that's different than saying that the person, as the person, laid aside divine prerogatives, which are uh, necessarily inherent to the divine nature. 
Um, so those, those two things are very different. Veiling, laying aside. Dr. White seems to confuse these two things and, and speak of them as if they are synonymous. They are not synonymous. And, and that's part of the, con the, the, uh, the, the concern of, of, the, of the discussion here. Functioning as a Messiah is an obvious biblical reality. It is not a diminishment of the divine being. It is not a cessation of these um, capacities. But if it's for if it's if it's foregoing the exercise of divine prerogatives, how is that? My question is, how is that any different from saying that there has been cessation in the person of the Son of that which is proper to the divine nature, namely divine prerogatives? Right. So how how is this not? Um, some kind of inevitable or, or uh, not inevitable, but some kind of uh, uh, unintentional doublespeak here. I'm not, uh, I'm not accusing him of intentionally doing, doing this, but it seems like, uh, you know, it's a, it's a contradiction to say on the one hand that the person of the son is, 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 uh, is um, forfeiting the exercise of some divine prerogatives. And then to say, well, no, that's not to say that he is ceasing to exercise that which is proper to uh, the divine nature or that he is ceasing to uh, realize divine capacities to use his language. I wouldn't use any of this language formally, um, but, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just using uh, Dr. White's language here. So you, you can see the, the confusion in, in my mind. I'm trying to express, you know, where I see the disconnect and where others have seen the disconnect and what has caused the concern here in, in his, in his uh, Christological language. These attributes of, of divinity that are the sons by nature, any of these things. But it is a purpose. He makes himself nothing. It is... And, and if and Dr. James White does confess the doctrine of divine simplicity, he, he does not articulate it consistently in, in, in the estimation, in, in my estimation and in the estimation of others. But in light of divine simplicity, which is a doctrine him and I both confess, um, at least, you know, uh, just externally, we, bo we, both, we both say we believe in the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, in light of the doctrine of divine simplicity, how are you making a distinction between divine prerogatives on the one hand, divine capacities on the other hand, and then divine attributes on, on yet a third hand, right? How do you make distinctions... How are you dividing between those those three things, those three categories within the divine being, within the divine nature? And then you're saying that Jesus doesn't exercise these divine prerogatives, but yet at the same time, he's not giving up or not exercising uh, divine attributes or divine capacities. In light of divine simplicity, how does that work? How does that follow uh, is, is the question. Literally, an exercise of divine power veiling that divine power sort of you know when you think about it when the resurrected christ meets the disciples in road to emmaus their eyes are hindered there there is a, a force that is placed upon them so that they will not recognize who he is for what for a purpose for a purpose so he might open the scriptures to them and so for a purpose and for a time there is a veiling of the glory and in the same way you then have 
the very difficult, challenging text where Jesus says that only the Father, not the Son, nor the angels in heaven, no man knows the day of the hour, only the Father in heaven. And, you know, you could understand that if, as some people have understood that as being only in reference to the human nature, I suppose. But I think it follows very much along the lines of what we just discussed. There are certain aspects of the glory of the sun that are veiled during the incarnation. And so at that. So this, this seems to entail what, what he seems to be indicating here is that the divine person of the son, according to the deity, according to his divine nature was ignorant of the day or the hour, right? Uh, I mean, you just heard him say that, you know, I suppose that one could just, uh, you know, attribute that ignorance to the person according to his human nature, I suppose. But he seems to indicate it, it that ignorance is broader than just the human nature, that that ignorance um, is entailed in the so-called veiling of the divine glory. And this is where I think we start to get into the mistake or the error of thinking that there is some conversion that's going on here from the divine person of the Christ, that he's he's converting um, his person into, into a, a human uh, form. And that's not what's being said in the doctrine of the incarnation, as we've just read from the confession that it's without conversion, it's without composition or confusion. So in other words, the, the divine person of the Son is not changing from the divine person of the Son into a human person. And likewise, the, the divine person of the Son is not uh, to be uh, the, the divine nature uh, in which the divine per, or in which the person of the son subsists eternally is not to be confused with the human nature the human nature is not to be confused with the divine so that which is proper to the human nature is ascribed to the human nature ignorance and it's not ascribed to divinity that's what it means not to make a confusion between the divine and human natures at point in time in the incarnate state it's not that the son did not know before the incarnation and would not know at his exaltation or anything like that. But that there was some reason why at that point in time, it was profitable for the Messiah, the son to not know. Um, those are his words. You've got to deal with them. You can, you, you, you can't, if, if you have to look at the words written by Matthew and come up with an interpretation that could not, have possibly been what Matthew intended or anyone Matthew wrote to intended and could not have been known for centuries, millennia after the point of writing. You're no longer, we're no longer dealing with, with the scripture being any kind of meaningful foundation of our beliefs, right? Can, can we agree with that? I, I hope we can, because that's, that's pretty obvious. Um, and so, uh, with all of that having been uh, been said, I need to uh, respond here. And uh, wow, we've gone an hour, so I will I will try to just finish with this. There's another quote from the same individual that 
we'll get to it another point in time, I suppose. But um, let me move this over here and um, we will we will make it big and we will share this so that you can see I'm not making any of this stuff up. This is Pastor Josh Summer. I think it's Victory Baptist Church, as I recall. It's graduate of the Spurgeon College at Midwestern and a very uh, vociferous uh, new Baptist Thomist. And um, son is right. So first, I've never referred to myself as a Baptist Thomist. I don't even refer to myself as a Thomist. And if someone called me that in person, I would correct them. And I would say, I'm a particular Baptist who subscribes to the confession, the 1689, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, these kinds of... I don't think it's helpful to take these kinds of terms and just start to, uh, monikers and and apply them with the hopes that they will give off some kind of negative connotation about an interlocutor. I don't think that helps move the discussion forward at all. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, we don't, to, to go with the, the, uh, the letter to the uh, judicious and impartial reader of the Second London, we don't want to clog religion with, with new terms, newfangled ideas. We don't want to clog religious discussion with unnecessary language either. So I just don't, Dr. White, if you're watching this, which I hope I hope you do, I don't call myself that. I would appreciate not to be called that, right? I've never called myself a Baptist Thomist. Um, and I, I would, uh, you know, if, if you request uh, to me that I don't refer to you a certain way, I would, I would receive that and I would, I would abide by it. And I, um, I, I would hope that you would do the same. So here is, uh, today's, uh, tweet from Josh Summer. Just a few fundamental articles of the Christian faith currently under revision by some quote, big names end quote. I'm, I'm really not totally certain why these folks, you know, just won't use names. They're talking about me. I remember back in uh, 2015 is when I first read Reasons for Faith by Dr. K. Scott Oliphant over at Westminster East. And it was when I read Reasons for Faith that I started encountering the idea of covenantal properties accruing to God as a result of God having created and entering into the creational relationship, and therefore there is some kind of accrual of, co of covenantal properties that begins to occur um, in God or with God at the time of creation. Um, and around that same time, the, the ARBCA debate centered around the doctrine of impassibility was going on, um, and the revision that I have in mind here it preceded that, but it was really coming to a head at that point back in 2015 before I would have leveled any sort of criticism at Dr. James White. And it was when I was listening to the dividing line uh, favorably. Right. Um, and so uh, this is this is much more widespread than just the recent dust up. 
Um, so I, I have names in mind like uh, Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. I also have Owen Strayan in mind. I have uh, some of the things that Jeffrey Johnson wrote in uh, Failure of Natural Theology in mind concerning God as Actus Purus um, and the denial of immobility and the divine essence. I have that in mind. I do have, with, with regard to the phraseology, you see here divine prerogatives with regard to the canonic theory in uh, the third point here, I do have Dr. James White in mind when I, when I talk about uh, Christ laying aside or, or stopping or, or uh, I guess, not exercising certain divine prerogatives. Um, and that's language he's, he's used. And again, to make the distinction between a heretic and problematic doctrine, heretical doctrine, uh, heterodox doctrine. Um, these are something. These are things that can be said and corrected and repented. It doesn't mean the person's outside of the kingdom. Um, and and as we've just seen, I think there's a great deal uh, of talking past one another. And there's, if we got down to the brass tacks, if we could, if we could figure out what Dr. James White means um, by a laying aside of divine prerogatives, because he may not mean that. He may not mean what that phraseology seems to imply, namely that there has been some kind of change that has occurred in the divine being. So, you know, um, but at the same time, if if that is what you mean, if the boot fits, wear it, I guess. Um, but there's no formal accusation of heresy here. Um, and, and just to be totally transparent, the other reason I don't mention personal names anymore is because I don't want it I don't want to make it about persons. I want the attention to be on the doctrine and the truth or the falsehood thereof, because that's what's important. Um, it's, it's about the truth or falsehood of doctrine. Do we believe true things or not? Do we confess true things or not? That's where the rubber hits the road, okay? And so, I'm not coming out and calling anybody a heretic. I don't think anybody's a heretic at this juncture, um, and and uh, but I do think there are there are dangerous doctrines, and I think there is a flirtation going on here at this point with a departure from orthodoxy, and we want to try to talk about it. We want to try to sharpen iron over it, and and we want to try and and say come back, right? Um, this isn't a good direction, and it's not going to suit future generations well either um maybe they're taking some shots at jeff johnson and stuff too but right now it's it's me uh very clearly number one the immutability and simplicity of god number two the consistent consubstantiality of the divine persons number three the incarnation of the person of the son wherein he takes a human nature to himself without setting aside his deity that he laid aside his deity or divine prerogatives in the incarnation is a heresy called kenosis. God is one. This one God is Father, Son, Spirit. The Father is of none. The Son is of the Father. The Spirit is of both Father and Son. The Son is God with the Father always and forevermore and does not lay aside deity in taking upon himself the fullness of a human nature. This is the only sure and stable ground of the Christian faith Lord help us. Now, um, again, sounds very uh, pious, but here are the errors and quite simply the lies that Josh Summer is putting out. Uh so 
it's only lies if you go ahead and jump to the conclusion that all of this is being predicated of James White. And it's not. And there's no grounds for thinking that either, unless you're assuming dishonesty at the outset. Because I begin the statement with big names. It's in the plural for a reason. Um, and again, not wanting this discussion to be made into a personal matter, but wanting it to revolve around doctrine, conversation about doctrine, and discovering the truth of doctrine or the falsehood of doctrine, what to believe, what not to believe, I think is, is where the rubber meets the road, and that's what we need to focus on. So the, uh, the charge of, of lying is, is groundless in this, in this situation. Um, the immediate, when, you, when the new Thomists, the new Baptist Thomists speak, you must understand that they and only they Again, not a moniker I've applied to myself. Get to define um, the meanings of terms. They and only they. No, that's not true. Um, that's demonstrably not true because we've always made our appeal to others. We've always made our appeal to other sources in the definition of terms, whether those sources be scripture themselves or the articulation of certain terms that arose through um, uh, the interpretive tradition and the theological tradition of theology proper. Um, we've appealed to uh, Richard Muller's uh, Dictionary of Latin and Greek Terms, the second edition, um, which is not just a book full of Muller's muses concerning the definition of those terms, but it's researched um, di uh, uh, analysis uh, of the meaning of those terms as they were used within their theological contexts. We've always made our appeal to dictionaries like Woolner's uh, Philosophical Dictionary. We've always, we've always made our appeal to the diachronic and the synchronic use of terms. We're not just making these definitions up and saying that these definitions have to be the way they are. We're making our appeal to the uh, not only the authorial intent of creedal and confessional documentation, but also uh, the the theological contextual milieu of those documents as well. The Nicene Creed. What did they mean by "very God"? A very God, right? Uh, what what did what does um, what does the Athanasian Creed mean when it says there's no de there's no gradation in God, right? Between Father, Son, Spirit. Um, what does the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Confession mean in chapter 2, article 1, when it says that there are no body, parts, or passions in God? What does that mean? We've always made our appeal to the classical definitions of those terms. We're not making these definitions up on the fly. We've always made our appeal to that which is not ourselves. In my, in my understanding and to the best of my ability and, and knowledge, we've made that appeal to other sources. It, it's not just, you know, we're not just saying this is the term, this is the meaning of the term because we've decided it to be so and our flag stands here and we're not moving it. That's not what we're doing. Um, that, that I agree with James White that that would not be careful scholarship. It would not be honest. It would not be um, properly engaging. Um, and it wouldn't even be interesting. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about the scholars that are involved in this discussion, um, and and uh, even even at the at the more uh, at the you know uh, at my level and and you know things that have been 
produced on this channel. Appeal has been made to the Cappadocians. Appeal has been made to uh, primary source material um, to justify the certain use and context of terms that have been used with relation to the doctrine of divine simplicity, the doctrine of the Trinity, and so on. And so that's just not a fair characterization of the work that has been done on the other side, uh, contra the side that James White sits on currently. No one else, their definitions are the definitions. And if... Again, they're, they're not our definitions. And this has been... This is... This is so obvious. Um, and, and has been... Uh, so uh, ingrained in the way we've done things because the, all of this has arisen from resourcement. So how could they be our definitions if, if, if the entire um, recovery of, of a classical doctrine of divine simplicity, classical Trinitarianism, classical doctrine of the Incarnation, how could they be our definitions if our very interest in those doctrines has come and has arisen as a result of, of historical resourcement. So, you know, it just, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I mean, find a term that we've arbitrarily assigned definitions to and won't budge on it. And, and you know, I'll, I guess I'll agree with James White that this has occurred, but, you know, in my estimation, it has not. Their definitions are extremely extended. If their definitions could never have been understood in the first century or in the first millennium, it uh, doesn't matter. They get to define it. And if you do not cross their T's and dot their I's, then you're denying everything. So I can write an article defending monotheism, the simplicity of God. And that's not enough. It doesn't matter. I think the problem here is, you know, what we want to be very careful about is not to turn something like the confession or the confessional language into a wax nose where there is some kind of quote-unquote, Christian pluralism that takes place. Oh, well, that's just your view of those terms. I have a different view of those terms and their meaning, right? I don't think it works that way because in a lot of these cases, these terms are, uh, are, are, are quite analytical and technical, um, and they have a, uh, a, a very wooden technical meaning if you're taking those terms according to their uh, original usages uh, within the context of those confessional documents. And even the Nicene Creed, you know, the creedal documents and the confessional documents, they're not wax noses. And w what I think is sad is that when, you, w when, we, when we start to treat the confessional documents and the creedal documents as wax noses, oh, well, that's just my opinion, my view of what those things mean. You might have a different view, and that's that's okay, and there's some kind of legitimacy given to other views of that language, then the scriptures start to become wax nosish as well. Um, and, and there's this kind of pluralism. Uh, I'm not accusing James White of being a pluralist. I'm just saying that, that uh, this, this lending credence to differing views as to the meaning of these terms, I think, is, is, is a dangerous place to be in because it's, it's not recognizing that these terms actually do have a technical meaning, which Dr. White is currently calling the extended meaning, right? No, this is just the, the technical meaning of the term as it was used. That's what we're trying to understand, and that's what we're trying to consistently confess 
right? So that we can we can know what we confess and that we can confess it with clear consciences. Um, and uh, and so we'll we'll go on. I can say God is not made up of parts. Um, but you see, I don't embrace an Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysic that says that if you can conceive of a difference between things, then those things become different things in reality and therefore become parts. Uh, that's never been our claim. That's never been our claim at all. And in fact, this is why we've made our appeal to dictionaries like uh, like uh, like Moeller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Terms, because if you look at uh, the definition uh, with regard to distinctio, or the distinction, he walks through, uh, he basically gives a survey of different kinds of distinctions, um, conceptual distinctions, uh, formal distinctions, and so on. And so we don't say, because we... People who believe in the doctrine of divine simplicity as it's articulated in the Confession obviously still articulate the, art, the, the, the attributes of God. We still list them out. We still articulate them in sermons. We still teach the attributes and what they mean definitionally, right? So we're not saying because you can conceive of those things, they are therefore different or really distinct in the divine essence. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the conceptual distinctions that we make do not also exist in the divine essence. They're conceptual distinctions, um, and so they're, they're distinctions that we make, uh, which are, you know, uh, indicative of our creaturely estate. We have to make these kinds of distinctions which arise from our process, motion, movement as creatures. We reason discursively. God doesn't exist that way. Um, and so um, what, what we've said and the, and the claims that have been made from our, our side, is that the, con, the conceptual distinctions but that we make between the attributes of God are not also distinctions really extant in the divine being, because God is simple. And so the enumeration of attributes are enumerated because God has revealed himself to us in an accommodated way that we can understand. And so we pick up on those attributes through his works. Um, and, and they are broken out for us, you know, enumerated for us because we're creatures and that's how we think. We have to think um, in some sense atomistically, uh, to, put it, to put it that way. So ad intra, you have to make all the attributes of God one thing and pretend that you can know what God himself, how God himself views his own attributes internally. Even though we have no divine revelation of this, but I really hope that the divine attributes internal to God are not distinct objects of God's own knowledge, <laughs> because that would imply that these attributes are different in God and that they are not themselves God, which means there are things in God making God to be God that are not themselves God. Therefore, God would be contingent, dependent upon that which is more basic than himself to be himself. That's the concern of divine simplicity, that we say that all that is in God is God because God is self-existent. And the self-existence of God is most certainly revealed in Scripture in Exodus 3.14, as Dr. James White agrees 
in his own exegesis of that passage. And it's a necessary consequence that if God is self-existent, he does not depend on that which is not himself to exist. That's what self-existence means. He exists through himself. He does not exist through that which is not himself to be himself. If you don't do that, then you don't believe in simplicity. You can defend it. You could have defended it longer than Josh Summers has been alive. It does not matter. You don't really believe it. A unit has pulled in next to mine. And and I, right now, I'm just simply thankful that my unit automatically levels itself. Uh, the poor fellow next door is having to use a power, power uh, tool to do that. So you might hear something in the background. Hopefully, the microphone is going to get rid of most of it, but hopefully. Um, so no one is denying the immutability and simplicity of God, but people are questioning the uh, extended uh, assertions of Thomistic metaphysics that were not a part of our discussions only a decade ago. But Well, of course they weren't part of our discussions a decade ago because we're learning. We're finite creatures who are subject to ignorance. And so I would hope that we would all have uh, the humility to admit that we are all learning, right? So a decade ago, I wasn't confessing these things. Six years ago, I wasn't confessing these things. And and nearly almost all of the men I speak with uh, who, you know, who would agree with the confession on the language of, of the doctrine of God, um, they didn't understand what the confession meant, you know, a matter of six or seven years ago, not at least consistently, and so to be recognizing that we're learning, that we're coming to terms with what this confession even means, I think is huge. Of course, we weren't talking about these things 10 years ago. Most of us weren't even talking about these things five years ago. I admit that, right? I, I mean, we should all admit that there's been some, hopefully there's been some growth, some theological growth in all of us over the last decade. You know, Dr. James White has, has recently made some big shifts in doctrine in eschatology and in uh, a political theology. Theonomy and postmillennialism were not things that he confessed five or six years ago, um, but he, according to his own testimony, has come to a grasp of those things. Okay, fair enough. We're all learning, right? We're all learning, and, and, and so we should readily, you know, acknowledge that. Hey, you know, as long as you can make the argument, then... Uh... You have to, you have to go. This is also why it's important to recognize the distinction when we're talking about heretical doctrine or, or, or um, heterodoxical doctrine. It's very important to make the distinction between um, ignorance and recalcitrance, right? You know, uh, 10 years ago, we may have not been confessing the doctrine of divine simplicity, but we sure weren't recalcitrantly denying it either. Um, and so the Lord has been gracious to bring us along and to and to increase our knowledge, and, and he does that for every believer who's indwelt by the Spirit of God. Oh, with what's being said. Uh, two, the consistent consubstantiality of the divine persons. Now, I don't know what exactly uh, Josh has in mind here. I mean that the divine persons are one with the divine essence, that the divine essence, the one divine essence just is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit consubstantial. It's not the per most perfect term, but that's that's what I mean by it. Um, there was there was a lot of very vague uh, 
And this is something else about the Thomists. They, they, they seem to think that they have the right to just simply throw out undefined statements as if they have some type of meaning. And, so, and, and we're, just, we're just left trying to come up with the application. What, what exactly does that mean? How is the consistent consubstantiality of the divine persons being denied by anything I've said? I, my, my guess is that this has to do with inseparable operations. So to bring that back up again, this isn't a part of, let's see, where's that at? Okay. Hope you guys can see that. Um, so point two is not really in reference to Dr. White. Um, there was some concerning language that he used in a debate with Roger Olson that, uh, you know, the three centers of consciousness, um, he's not recanting that, but he's also not necessarily doubling down on that. It, it, it seems like there's some things that he says that would require him to believe that, or even to believe in the three wills of God, that like the son would have, uh, another will in addition to the father by which the son would, you know, give up his, you know, or, 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 or cease exercising some of his divine prerogatives in contradistinction to the father. So there's, there's problematic language, but actually on point two there, the consistent substantiality or consubstantiality of the divine persons has to do with the allegation or the, not the allegation, but the assertion that there are three wills in God. All right. Um, you cannot maintain consistently the identity of the, the identification of the divine persons with the one divine essence. If you're going to, if you're going to uh, allege that there are three different wills in in the Godhead, that you can't you can't consistently do that, um, and so uh, or or you know think of the persons as substances in themselves, beings uh, that are just agreeing together in will. There's kind of a community of persons. This is uh, uh, what has got what has been called. Uh, uh, it's been called. Um, not theistic personalism, but um, social trinitarianism, um, and so that's that's what I have in mind with that is that language that's been around um, for a little while now. Um, and if you read the book, the Trinity book that was edited by Bruce Ware and had some articles in it by Kyle Clonch and and uh, and 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 Ware himself and some others, uh, there is some language like like three wills in God language there in in that book. Um, as well. So, you know, that's that's what I have in mind with that. Again, not everything is a, a, a criticism of James White and everything that I post or, and, and you know, I, I don't want him to have to think that. That seems like a heavy burden to bear it, to, to, to think that everybody is, is talking about you and everything that they say. That's just not, not the case, brother. Um, and so my guess is that if the son, as the son, uh, if because Josh Summer has denied that the father can love the son eternally. I've got the quote right here. He's put it out there. Um, I would like to see that quote. Um, he doesn't mention it here, but um, um, that, uh, that God is love in accordance with the language that we encounter in the New Testament. Um, God is love, and that love eternally subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um would seem to answer James White's concern. Uh, and although it would not, it would not have the father loving the person of the father, loving the person of the son as a creaturely person would love another creaturely person because God's not a creature that he should love in the same way that creatures love one another. Okay. So anyway, and so, so in other words, I, I, 
that's not what I said, but I probably also don't affirm what he wants me to affirm. Um, because I don't think of the of the persons in the same terms as one would consider a creaturely person. Um, so anyway. Um, that's my guess is that where he's, because he didn't you know, flesh it out here, but that's my guess is where he's going, is that you don't believe in the consistent consubstantiality of the divine persons. Well, it's easy for me to respond to that by simply going, I'm not sure you believe in divine persons. If the Father can't love the Son in eternity, then I'm not even sure you believe in divine persons anymore. It's part of the reason why the, the classical language, you know, the Holy Spirit proceeding from both Father and Son is a bond of uh, love. Um, or they'll say it's the Holy Spirit just is love proceeding from, from Father and Son. Uh, and so it relates the love to the eternal processions, the relations of origin. Um, the Father is of none, as I as I mentioned in the in the bottom half of the of the uh, post. There, the Father is of none. The Son is of the Father. The Holy Spirit is of both Father and Son. And um, the other thing that I'll say about the persons language is uh, is that that word has been applied to our Trinity language, not as a means of reading anthropomorphic personality into God, but really as a means of just having something to say so that we won't be silent at all. Um, and so it's very important to acknowledge what is meant by person in Trinitarian theology historically. That's another point of inquiry, trying to figure these things out. And uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith uses subsistences um, because a subsistence is the manner of being, um, the, the manner in which the one divine being eternally exists is in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, they're, and that's how they're distinguished also, is that the one divine being subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. Um, and the distinction is made in virtue of the relations of origin, that the Father is of none. That's what distinguishes the Father from the Son. The Son is of the Father. That's what distinguishes the Son from the Father. The Father or the Spirit is of both Father and Son. That's what distinguishes the Spirit from Father and Son. There's nothing else that distinguishes the persons other than those eternal relations of origin. The, the, uh, the manner in which the one divine essence subsists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, and but when we're not, we don't distinguish between the persons by reading into creaturely psychological personhood, by reading, reading creaturely psychological personhood into the divine essence such that now what constitutes a divine person just is a, um, a complex psychological uh, uh, form of personhood. That's that's not what we're doing, um, and and some people don't like the fact that we don't we don't read into a modern view of personhood. We we don't read a modern view of personhood into the divine being, um, and and then we get confused, uh, you know, as modalists for doing that. Um, if you read anybody, from Calvin to John Gill to back to Francis Turretin to Stephen Charnock. They're not thinking of personhood in that way. 
and the language or the, the definitions and the meaning of the terms in our confession do not understand personhood in that way. So very, very careful distinction there. That's easy to do, right? Um, but then number three, the incarnation of the person of the son, which I just got done going through. And, and again, anybody can go to published articles, books that have been around for decades. And what I just said when I went through Philippians 2 with you is what I said in the 1990s. So consistency over time. And so many of these people had recommended my work in these areas back then before Baptist Thomism began. Uh, the incarnation of the person of the son, wherein he takes a human nature to himself. By the way, just in passing, I've recommended many, many times, my favorite debate with a Muslim is my debate with Abdullah Kunda on the incarnation, can God become man? And we were so focused, had to become so focused on what the nature of the incarnation was and the perfect human being, the perfect human nature that Jesus takes on. I do not believe any of these Neo-Thomas, these Baptist Thomas could engage that debate with any level of success at all. No one, none of the Muslims in the room and most of the Christians in the room would have no earthly idea what they'd be talking about. Because as far as I can tell, these people don't take this stuff out into the world. It's, it's in the classroom, but it's take it out and talk to a bunch of Muslims on the street in London. Who would do that? Well, I would and have. Um, we're in so I remember back in 2014 and 15, <clears throat> the gentleman who is the best man at my wedding, him and I, uh, we, we belong to the same church, and we, and we together started an evangelism ministry. And uh, we would go, we'd frequently go out to uh, Balboa Park in San Diego, uh, downtown San Diego. And on Saturdays, if you've ever been there on a Saturday, you know that uh, the booths that are set up there are um, manifold. Um, and uh, it can go from, you know, five booths, a couple booths to, you know, 20 booths out there, each of them selling their own view of reality. It's, a, it's an incredibly confusing place. So we thought, well, if we could go down there and provide some gospel clarity um, in Balboa Park, you know, then, then we can be a voice for the truth. And, and, and there's an atheist booth there. There were Muslims. There was a Muslim booth uh, there. We engaged those guys all the time. Shah was the guy that uh, led that table, and we would engage him frequently. Our church at the time was next-door neighbors to a mosque, and uh, it was separated only by a chain-link fence, fence. And so when they would have... Um, Ramadan would be one of the... One of the uh, uh, larger uh, times to to go out there um, and uh, and talk to those Muslims because they would they would park blocks away and they would they would commute by by foot to to the mosque and so they would have to walk right past our property and we go out there and engage them all the time pass out tracks and engage them uh, about uh, the nature of God Trinity always always came into the discussion um, and the incarnation the identity of the Son of God um, and, uh, and since then, um, you know, I, about three years ago is when I took the call to, to Victory Baptist Church. And to bring this theology into the church, 
uh, or to the church. Not saying that it wasn't there before. I think it was there before. But to but to but to but to take time to teach on it and and to and to assume it in preaching and in Sunday school classes has been, I think, an incredibly profitable thing. To say that there's no mobility in God and therefore the promises of God are immovable has been an incredibly pastoral application of this high doctrine. So he's always saying, you know, Dr. White has, has accused us several times, and a lot of the men that I know and talk with about this, uh, this doctrine who agree with the confession on it and are in the same camp uh, as I am, most of them are pastors. Most of them are pastors of, of quite small churches. Uh, and, and I'm a pastor of a small church. And this doctrine has come in useful from the pulpit, in the Sunday school classroom, in counseling. Um, and it, it has been brought to a relatable level to congregations. Um, and so the charge here is that, well, this is just too... Um, this is just too too high doctrine. Their technicalities, their their precision, and all of that. It's got to remember that you know when we're interacting online or something like that, or in articles, it's like there's a different audience for an academic article than there is for uh, the pulpit ministry. And of course, we're going to articulate divine simplicity um, to different extents depending on our context and. I just don't think it's right or helpful in the conversation to just label all of us as, you know, these ivory tower proponents who who sit in these glass houses and throw stones at everyone. Um, and it's just it's just unrealistic. It's not it's not an accurate representation of his interlocutors. Again, a lot of the men he's criticized, myself included, are pastors, <laughs> pastors of churches, who have to week in and week out. Uh, figure out what the congregation needs and spiritually and then and then to be able to take the high things of God and they are high and feed the sheep with them is something that all of these m- most of these men with the exception of a couple seminary professors all of these men are engaged in uh, doing that week in and week out so this whole idea that this is just an impractical discussion, uh, these guys are ivory tower proponents, you know, they're just classroom guys, you know, that's not true. We're all pastors. We're all pastors. He takes a human nature to himself without setting aside his deity. No one has ever said that. I- okay, people have said that. James White has never said that, and I never accused James White of saying that. Didn't. And we know this is aimed at me, and that's a lie. We don't know this is aimed at you. I've denied that, and the context of the of the uh, post itself denied that because big names is in the plural. So unless you're already reading yourself into it, there's no reason to think it's just about you. Which is hence part of the reason we've needed to to make this clarification here. It's not all about James White. It's just a lie. It's not a lie. Uh, I would demand if. Josh Summer, if you if you believe, if you're talking about me and you said big names and this was posted within less than 24 hours after my discussion of these very things, you know who you're talking about. I demand you document this or you apologize. Withdraw it. It's slanderous. It's sinful. It's a lie. I've never said it. Never came close to saying it. And no honest person 
who has read my articles or listened to my words would ever say that. You're lying, young man. Repent of it. Just admit it. Okay, so we're done with that. I'm going to go ahead and jump off of here because we're already at time. We're way over time. Um, I would just say that, uh, you know, uh, there was some of that in the in the uh, Facebook post that did apply to James White. For example, not exercising certain divine prerogatives. But I was not applying everything in there to James White, as the context of the post makes very clear. I do not think Dr. James White is a heretic. I'm not accusing him of being a heretic. I think there is some problematic doctrine that needs talked about. I think we need to have better conversation. We need to have better interaction. And Dr. James White, you have my number. You've had it for four months. And I would love to talk to you. Um, but the one-way conversations and these one-way monologues online have not been helpful and the way they've been carried out. So God bless you, sir. God bless anyone who has benefited from this video. Um, and if it has been helpful, please consider sharing it and subscribing to the channel. Have a wonderful rest of your day.